Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Now, we get on the air because of the skillful engineering work of Alan Dempsey. And Andrew Hurdliska produces this show for us each weekend. And he has produced Dr. Gregory Jantz. Uh, Dr. Jantz is uh, way out yonder. Well, he's in Edmonds, Washington, north of Seattle. He is the founder of The Center, a place of hope in Edmonds, Washington. He is an author, and his new book is out, Seven Answers for Anxiety. Greg, welcome. How are you doing? Nice to talk to you. It is always good to be with you. And yes, boy, what a timely topic. Yes. Oh, boy. We're all dealing with anxiety, aren't we? We're uptight. We're anxious. We're nervous. We're fearful. All of the above, right? All the above. Well, people have been a little, if you will, uh, quarantine turned into confinement, and you can only do confinement for so long. And then there's all the unknowns about the future, what's it going to look like. And so we add all this up. It's kind of like an emotional ticking time bomb for so many. And so, you know, right now, anxiety has taken the lead as the number one mental health issue it is now above depression greg uh those of us deep down here in the southeast uh uh, keep wondering what is going on this summer in the pacific northwest seattle and now portland we 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 see the headlines we see the stories what's your take well, I think, too, people, uh, there are a lot of things that have been allowed to happen that should not be. And uh, what's happened is now that's created more anxiety because people don't feel physical safety or emotional safety. And so you end up again with a situation that's going to continue to be unpredictable. There have not been appropriate boundaries placed on on certain activities and um you know, unfortunately, uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, situations that I, from my perspective, should never have occurred. Greg, you say that anxiety is defined as a painful or apprehensive uneasiness. Where does this come from, and why is it so much worse for some people? Yes. Well, I start with worry. Worry is, is a mental process. Worry is when I pat recycle all the what ifs. Well, what if uh, this happens? What if? And I can get myself all worked up with all these what ifs. And uh, then what happens is I, I, I move it over to anxiety. I start to feel uh, physical symptoms. My palms get a little sweaty. You know, you feel anxiousness kind of in your gut, and it kind of radiates out from there. And so anxiety means I do have physical symptoms. And so that's what we're seeing with people. It's disruptive. Oftentimes somebody may wake up during the night uh, wide awake and their heart's racing, and they're kind of having a panic attack in their sleep. So these are some of the things that we're seeing uh, as we're working with folks. Literally, we work with folks from all around the country. 
Uh, now, Greg, I want you to explain to us the difference between anxiety and a phobia. Sure. You know, a phobia could be a specific fear. Sometimes we hear, Pat, the word uh, arachophobia, the fear of spiders. It's a specific fear. Uh, there's people who have, like, for example, the fear of heights. Uh, so usually something has happened that has created a specific fear. Now, the uh, one that we're seeing right now increase is the one called agoraphobia. It's the fear of, of, of literally leaving your home. It's the fear technically what we call basis. So uh, all this uh, quarantine and confinement for some people who have a lot of anxiety, it's kind of created this agoraphobia. That's a specific fear of, you know, getting out and, and uh, moving about. Now let's get to this topic. Do people with deep anxiety try to control their surroundings? What do you think? Well, I think that's the natural thing to do. I, I try to control things, but we're living right now in a situation in the world that feels out of control. And so if I already have anxiety and I have fear in my life, this sense of out of control because I can't control. I can't control what's happening in my community. I can't control things that are happening, and, and it seems fearful. And so then people, and here's, here's really um, something we need to really look for. People tend to turn to uh, really self-destructive things. They start drinking alcohol. And by the way, depending on where you live, alcohol sales right now are up 500 to 600%. Woo! And so, so people are turning uh, to substances. Um, they're turning to unhealthy behaviors to kind of cope with that anxiety because they feel that things are out of control. Well, obviously, that makes a worse problem. And they're probably turning to Dunkin' Donuts. And, well, food. And, Food's and, a big one. And Krispy yeah. Kremes, yes. Uh, it's easy to turn to food and go, well, I'm not going to drink alcohol. That's not good. But then people may be turning right over to, as you say, <laughs> have a donut <laughs> or two. Greg, I want you to uh, explain um, the hidden assumptions that people with anxiety believe. What are they? Well, some of the hidden assumptions we make is uh, that this is just the way it is. I can't change. Mm -hmm. A hidden assumption might look like um, I'm going to be this way forever. There's nothing I can do about this. One of the things when you've suffered from anxiety, you kind of develop an, an apathy. It's an apathy that it's like, uh, nothing's going to change. I don't really care. And, and that's kind of, a, if you will, a dangerous place to get stuck. If I'm apathetic, then I can set myself up uh, to feel a lot of depression. What do you believe, Greg, is the difference between a person's objective or subjective reality in terms of managing anxiety? What do you think? Well, perception is reality for people. So if I perceive the world as threatening, I perceive that I don't have a good future, I perceive that, uh, you know, God doesn't love me, or I, I start to make all these, um, in essence, faulty beliefs. And so those perceptions can really drive uh, my behaviors. Um, this is where I get into some self-destructive behavior. So be careful about what you're believing. And I'm going to say be careful about what you're putting in your mind. This is not, not the time for, you know, an, an over-diet of all the digital receiving notifications all day long. 
probably is not going to be healthy. Greg, let's get into this topic. You say that the fear of the past drains the promise of the future. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, the fear of the, of the past is the fear I'm going to re- repeat it. We've all kind of heard the term self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's what happens. I'm afraid. I'm anxious. That this isn't going to turn out well. Uh, and we start to uh, really play out uh, the negative future. And, and our beliefs, again, are driving those behaviors. So this is something we do have to, to look for. Now, Greg, explain to us, because your book seems to suggest that we try to rewire the way we view life by eliminating negative messages. And what's your, what's your thought on that? Well, this all takes some practice, um, and it's where, where is my point of focus? My point of focus is on everything that's negative. Uh, I mean, I can go from news to source to news source, and by the end of the day, you're going you're gonna to feel pretty negative. You're going to feel, uh, whoa, uh, pretty hopeless. So one of the things that we've got to look at is where is my point of focus? And one of the things that we need to work on during this time, and it's good for us all, is the, the area of gratitude. So start every day. Start every day. Ten minutes in quiet time, writing three to five gratitudes. Refocus. Ask yourself, who today can I reach out and touch? We do something as a family. Pat, my wife put on all our, our devices, and it shows up every day, and it says one person a day. And it's our reminder as a family that, that God's going to send one person a day for us to give a good word. Maybe they need a meal, but there's at least a person. So that we're not just looking at our own suffering, if you will. We're looking beyond that to how can I be of service. So that. Dr. Gregory Jantz is with us. His book, Seven Answers for Anxiety. Greg is uh, out in the state of Washington. Uh, we've got more with uh, Dr. Messages. On the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Greg Jantz is our guest from the state of Washington, his book, Seven Answers for Anxiety. Greg, before the break, uh, I, I was intrigued by a phrase that you used, point of focus. Can you expand a little more on that? What does that mean, and how do, how do we implement that? Yeah, one of the things we need to look at is what am I thinking about all day long? Is, it, is my uh, brain moving towards those things that are, are apparently negative, uh, am I worrying throughout the day? Am I um, really my point of focus is on those things that are not that helpful? And so as I move through this, I need to decide, what am I going to focus on? Where am I going to renew my mind and my thinking? And that's where I suggest uh, beginning a, a gratitude journal. Write down three, five things every day, every day. Um, so my wife has done this. For six years, mm. I asked her, okay, sweetheart, how many gratitudes have you written down? And she's gone through several journals. And she said, I'm at 20,220 
This is just the other day. I go, how do you how do you write down twenty thousand some gratitudes? And uh, she says, you know, it keeps me uh, looking towards the good and a good future. And you know, that's a point of focus. Yes, I want you to talk about people with anxiety tend to personalize negative messages. Yeah, we usually think we look through the lens, uh, distorted lenses of uh, of reality, and it's easy to be hypersensitive. Um, sometimes we'll look at, we'll feel afraid. We tend to see things that aren't there. Uh, we think somebody's, you know, after us and they're not, or somebody makes a comment and we over-personalize it. Uh, we think, oh, they don't like me, uh, they hate me. And see, you make what I call quantum leaps in your thinking. How do anxieties create a life on overload, Greg? <laughs> it keeps, you know, it's like a key state of chronic stress. Anxiety keeps me, um, and, you know, we've had enough chronic stress. And we got COVID, we got unrest. I mean, it just seems like it's a habitual state of take care of myself if my point of focus uh, on uh, the, those things that are causing stress I, I'm going to wear myself out and I'm going to be depressed and I'm going to go okay what I you know do I need medication what's going on well I'll tell you what you can answer the next question that'll, okay. that'll help do perfectionists tend to be more anxiety prone what do you think? Yeah, well, a perfectionist is a person that things never are quite right. We try to make them just right. We work hard to make it right. But a perfectionist is such that it's never okay. It's never quite good enough. If I feel like it's never quite good enough, I may then uh, be just living in a state of I'm not good enough, and so I feel anxious. Greg, there are times in life where anxiety is a normal, healthy response to circumstances. So what do you think about uh, how we can tell uh, if we're overreacting to something? Well, if we do those quantum leaps in our thinking, if we're easily, easily startled, if we're hypersensitive and everything in the world is about criticism, uh, those would be some signs. So step back. Take a take a, a breath. Um, I want you to work on renewing your mind. We need to be outside moving and walking, um, and uh, we need to do things. You know, people forget to drink their water. This mm. sounds really simple. But when you're anxious, you tend to drink other things that maybe are not so good, and people forget, and they get dehydrated. It's interesting that you just brought up water. My son was scolded uh, er oh. earlier this week. Dad, you're not drinking enough water. Yep. Uh, where, where does that fit into all this? Well, water. It's so funny. Water is so important because it improves mood, gives us energy. And water is on my little checklist to make sure I'm doing my water every day. And especially if you feel depressed or anxious, your body needs that. It improves mood. It's so important. Greg, I wonder what we did. I'm thinking back to my, I've been around a long time. W yep. What did we do before bottled water came along? <laughs> yeah, what did we do? So I'm trying to well, think. We, we had drinking fountains in school, I remember. Yep. Um, 
I guess we had glasses and cups at home, uh, but there was no great drinking water. I remember in, in high school football back in those days, they had a, a bucket of water and one dipper that everybody drank from. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Oh. Right, right. Uh, wouldn't do that today. Yeah. 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 And, and many coaches back in the day don't drink water during practice. You know, it's soft. You, you know, you're yeah. No water. No great coaches. Bear Bryant. You know, sign of weakness. No water. Good grief, boy. Now, Greg, the Bible tells us to be anxious for nothing. So, are we sinning when we're we get anxious? I think it's not that we're sinning when we get anxious. It could be a part of just the human condition, and I need to relearn how to deal with my worries. But I think it's what we do with it. If I'm anxious and I'm self-destructive and I turn to addictive behaviors or I, um, you know, am inappropriate with other people, it's, it's really where that anxiety uh, is allowed to take us. And that's what we want to stop. Uh, let's dig a little deeper. Where does one's uh, spiritual life fit into this discussion of anxiety? Well, we've got to have a foundation. We've got to have an anchor. And so um, I've got to anchor myself. And, and for me, it's anchoring myself in, in God's truth. And for me, it's looking, okay, well, what's, what's the Scripture say? And, and, you know, be anxious for nothing. Well, we're also told that we have a sound mind. Um, and so we're told really things that we can do. And we need to make this practical. Uh, but remember, fear and anxiety is the great paralyzer. It shuts us down. Mm-hmm. keeps us from taking action. So I'm challenging folks today. Uh, to, it's time to take action. Greg, um, uh, people have asked me, and I'm sure you've heard the same, what is God doing with this virus? Every nation on earth is affected. Seven, eight billion people are being touched in some way. What, what's God up to? Uh, what, what, uh, what do we say? You know, I don't know necessarily what God's up to, but what I do know is we have such an opportunity to reset. We're either going to reset or regret. So reset means I'm resetting priorities in my life. I'm resetting my health. I'm resetting my spiritual well-being. We have an opportunity, and I think that's the greatest thing I see, is to reset our lives in a direction that we're going to be pleased about. Does that mean it's easy? No. Does that mean there's a lot of uncertainties right now? Oh, yes. Um, But I can choose to reset because my other option is I'm going to regret. I didn't do anything. I turned to alcohol. um, And so I begin to do behaviors that I later will regret. So see this as a time, God, show me what to do. I want to reset my life. I want to live strong and in a new way now. Uh, Dr. Greg Jantz is our guest. Seven Answers for Anxiety. That's his latest book. Why do you include a chapter, Greg, about the importance of making healthy choices? And uh, what's this look like in practical terms? Well, uh, making healthy choices is right even down to my nutrition. Mm -hmm. Um, What am I putting in my mouth? Um, For example, I was just, you know, we work with clients who come in from all over. We just had somebody here that um, had 
incredible paralyzing anxiety. And nobody had ever asked him, you know, what do you eat? What do you drink? And, uh, you know, he was up to 12 to 14 cups of coffee a day. Mm. Well, how your, your body's going to be anxious. You know, 12 to 14 cups of coffee, that's a lot of caffeine. Uh, that will do something to you. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, oh, yes. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the things that, okay, you know, uh, every other cup we're going to replace it with water. And um, so these are some of the practical things. What are you putting in your mouth? How's your nutrition? Um, how's my self-care? Um, what am I doing with my sleep? Some people are so overstimulated with um, their devices and news and stuff. And so at night, mm. they lay there and their mind won't turn off because mm. it's been over overstimulated. Uh, that's a problem I'm having, Greg. Uh, getting in bed and then my mind just starts uh, going back into my past and racing ahead. And if, if I just have to... What, what, what does one do? What do you do? How do you get your mind to shut down? Well, a couple of things that we want to look at doing is what's my pre-sleep routine, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? Well, maybe an hour before bed, I need to turn off all the devices. Uh, maybe I need to uh, begin. If I have concerns, I'm going to write them down. Um, I'm going to create a, a journal. I'm going to end on a real positive note for the night. Uh, maybe it's one of God's promises. Um, and there, there's something the Bible even talks about having sweet sleep. <laughs> so what am I doing? What am I doing that hour before bedtime and allow it, you know, it may take 20 days, it may take a month, um, but allow a, a transition time because you're going to retrain your body physically. What do you think that means, sweet sleep? I think it's sweet sleep. The word that comes to my mind is peace that I can have sleep that represents peace. Um, I think that means I'm not waking up in the morning startled and anxious. I can begin my day, and you know, we talked about gratitude, but I can begin my day with peace. And maybe to help get me there is I'm going to start my day. Greg, do you think uh, with this crisis we're in, do you think uh, more people around the world are turning to the Lord? I think we are seeing, um, it's not a word I've heard used here recently, but I think we're seeing a, a revival of sense, um, and it's a revival of seeking. Well, um, when there's this level of uncertainty all around us, uh, we begin to seek. People are seeking. Well, what is it? What will give me peace? And so I think we have an opportunity. I think... Um, uh, People are turning their eyes or leaning, leaning back to uh, maybe a discovery who God really is. Greg, uh, let me summarize what I've been hearing here and see if I'm on the right path. So uh, dealing with anxiety, we want sweet sleep. We want to make sure we're eating properly. Uh, we want to stay focused on our water consumption. We want to stay away from uh, those things that we eat or drink that would be um, harmful to us. We want to make sure we get exercise. Uh, we want to make sure that we're thinking of others and how we can make a difference in their lives. We want to stay close to the Lord. We want to stay anchored in, in his word, the Bible. Yes. Is, is that, a, is that a, a pretty good summation of what we've yeah, been talking about? 
these are some of the things that we've got. And some do sound basic, but you know, when we're anxious, we forget to do the basic things. Um, so we need to create the foundation that you just described and give it a little bit of time. Now, there's times where we may need some professional intervention. There's some times that we need to deal with some other things in our life. But let's cover all the basics first. And, and Greg, uh, in closing, uh, what's it going to take to get this whole Portland thing settled down? Every day we read about how, how, can, you, how can you have these riots every night? Uh, what, what, what's going to happen there? Well, uh, talk about anxiety. Think mm. in terms of the people living in Portland, what this must do to their, mm. to them, the anxiety, and the businesses that are being ruined. Well, uh, ultimately, uh, if we're going to have a society with law and order, there's going to have to be a significant intervention. Mm. Greg, it's always good to talk to you. I'm so pleased that we... Uh... Uh, we could have some time together to talk about seven answers for anxiety. I wish you all the best. Hey, thank you. Always good to talk to you as well. Uh, we've got more after this right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, we're back, folks. Dr. Greg Jantz was our guest in that first segment. Enjoyed talking to Greg. Uh, Katie Kinsler uh, joins us. She's in Chicago. Uh, she's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. Her book is out, How You Say It. Why you talk the way you do and what it says about you. Katie, welcome to Orlando. How are you? For having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Katie, I, I want you to just give us the background on this book. What, why was sure. it important to write it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you look out into the world, it's really easy to see a lot of instances of social division, right? We all know that all too well. Um, and you might think about race or gender, nationality, um, sports team affiliation even can be a really big way that people divide themselves. Um, but one thing that people often don't think about when they think about dividing the world into groups is the issue of language and specifically the way they speak. Um, so people's language and their accent can be such a critical part of their identities, who they connect with and who they don't connect with. And so I really think this needs to be, you know, part of part of people's awareness about themselves and about others. Katie, you open your book with this topic. How you speak is who you are, and you write about your language is your tribe. You write around burnouts and valley girls and peers versus parents. Who's afraid of RBG remembering in Russian? I want to hear all about this. Okay, sure. So, you know, over the course of your life, sometimes your language can change a little bit. And often, you know, this reflects your changing social environment. And so when you speak to people, often your voices kind of converge a bit. And so particularly if you like somebody, you can, you know, feel a little bit closer to them. And then your voices can also just get a little bit closer to each other. And so kind of the bigger picture is that your feelings of identity, who you connect with, it's often kind of wrapped up in your language and informed by your language. Um, so, you know, I'll give you the, the remembering 
Turing and Russian example. Now, sometimes when somebody speaks two languages, some feelings, some of their parts of their feeling of who they are and what they remember are really um, wrapped up in their notion of language and culture. So if you take somebody who speaks two languages and they speak in one or the other, often they'll feel a little different. They'll remember things a little bit differently. Um, and to give the, um, the you know, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg example, um, you know, she's somebody who, as a Supreme Court justice, is just, you know, so revered. And so, you know, she's really seen as somebody who kind of, you know, knows her own mind and really projects that to people. And I think that's why so many people are really impressed by her. And linguists have looked at her language over the years. And through the way she speaks, in some ways, you can almost see her really um, owning her identity and feeling really comfortable in herself. So, you know, she grew up in Brooklyn. Um, and if you look at dialect features of how she speaks, you see some of this kind of New York, um, this New York English in the way that she talks. Um, and for a while, when she was on the Supreme Court, linguists actually didn't hear that much of that New York English. I'm kind of, you know, dropping your R's at the end, say, of a word. Um, but more recently, they do. And so in some ways, you can look at somebody's speech and say, when you feel really comfortable with yourself, that might, you might see that in the way that you talk, um, you know, kind of going back to your linguistic roots in some ways can really be a sign of somebody's identity. My guest in Chicago, Katie Kinsler, uh, we're talking about her book, How You Say It. Uh, let's move to the second topic, Katie, native tongues, you call it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in uh, what you're explaining here. Yeah. So I just told you about how our language can shift over time, right? So when you're coming into contact with somebody you like, or if you're feeling a sense of your own, you know, your own power and your own ability to kind of own your identity, that can often come through in your speech. But there's also a broader truth about our language and our speech, which is that a lot of it is informed by our lives when we're children. So, you know, if any listeners have tried to take a foreign language class in high school or in college or, you know, as an adult, it's really hard, right? It's just incredibly hard to learn a non-native language and to really sound native as an adult, to sound convincingly like you grew up speaking it. And that's because oftentimes the voices that we heard as a child, they're really reflected in our speech. Um, and so, you know, when I talk to you, I'm not just hearing your kind of current day social affiliations. I'm hearing what it sounded like when you were a child, because that's really what's coming out when you speak. So in that sense, we're all kind of, you know, often very forever marked by our native language experience. Katie, let's move to uh, topic number three. How language divides us, scarlet letters, shibboleth, toward ba- yeah. Babel, ugly Americans. What's, what's going on? So, you know, I kind of put those first two pieces together. So it's this, our language can kind of change throughout our lives. You know, it reflects our social affinities and our new social context. At the same time, we're forever marked by this native tongue. And so kind of you put those ideas together and you see when you hear somebody speak, we're really attentive of language as marking something about their identity, about who they are. And so from that, you can, you know, you figure out kind of who's in my group. You figure out who do I feel close? with. And so language can be this tremendous force for good. But of course, the flip side of that is that you can also see instantly, who do I think is not like me? Who might be not in my group? Or somebody else might hear my speech and think, oh, you know, you're not like me. And so it can be this instantly divisive force. And what I think 
can be so dangerous about that is that often we just really don't realize this about ourselves. That, you know, the idea that we're coding people or we just have so many stereotypes about different groups of speakers. And so you could think something about a whole group of speakers and then apply it to this individual and not even realize that you're doing it. And it might not have anything to do at all with that particular individual you're talking with. Katie Kinsler is with us from Chicago. We're talking about her new book. It's called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. Uh, Topic number four, Katie, a deep talk, organisms of nature, calls of the wild out of Africa. I want to hear all about this. So this is kind of this um, this psychology and really an evolutionary argument about how languages evolved and how the, you know humans have evolved speaking languages. And so the idea is that for a really long time we've used we've used speech to think about social groups. And so one fascinating thing about language is how quickly it can change. So imagine you know two groups say you know way back in time even a hunter gatherer group um, and then they get separated by a mountain range, say. Really quickly, over just, you know, a couple generations, you can start to see languages really quickly evolving and changing and reflecting new social circumstances. And so, you know, this is kind of true of any sort of language evolution, that when people are, you know, when people come together, their language comes together, but when they grow apart, their language grows apart, too. And so in this sense, we've always kind of seen language as something that's really, that can mark, you know, what group you're in and what group you're not. You can even see some signs of this in other animal species that engage in vocal learning, you know, so um, so other animals, some of them might be able to pick out, you know, kind of who's in your who's in your tribe or not based on how um, how somebody speaks. So I think this is a really ancient part of what we do, um, and because of that, sometimes we have some beliefs about language that can kind of be a little bit wrong in the modern era. And so often we see the way you speak as being this like really deep and a essential part of you, such that you might think that two people who speak in two different languages are actually far more different than they actually are. My guest is Katie Kinsler from Chicago. Uh, We've got another segment with Katie. And when we come back, uh, the first topic she's going to get into with us is called Little Bigots with a question mark. Mother tongue, social animals. When in Rome, Julie isn't racist. Aladdin's accent. Stay with us. Uh, You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We get together like this every weekend right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Uh, We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, folks, and you can help. Uh, Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just... Just register. Just say, yes, I'm for this. I think it's a good idea. Let's do it. Let's become a Major League Baseball city. And uh, just by doing that, uh, it expresses to Major League Baseball that we've got a lot of interest down here in Central Florida, here in Orlando. So uh, thanks for plugging in. Back with Katie Kinsler right after this. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Katie Kinsler is our guest here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And Katie, as advertised, uh, you're going to talk about Chapter 5 called 
little bigots? So the question mark is important. Thank you for calling that out. Um, you know, so one question, no, I'm actually a developmental psychologist, so a lot of my own research studies kids, and I'm really interested in questions about how do kids learn social bias, right? Like, obviously, there's a lot of biases that are out there, a lot of prejudices in this world. How do kids learn about that um, and what's communicated to them? And so, you know, one thing that we find really early in life is that kids start to think about what language you're speaking as providing a window into who you are and providing a lot of social information. Um, I find in some circumstances that kids even care about language more than they care about somebody's race. Now, of course, kids are growing up in a society which unfortunately has a lot of racism in it, so they soon start to learn about race. Um, so the question is when they're, you know, when they're first starting to think about language and how language marks and divides social groups, like, you know, are they bigots? Are they being xenophobic? What's going on here? And I think they're not. I think that kids intuitively see language as marking and dividing groups. They see language as providing so much social meaning. But then society comes in, and there's a lot of xenophobic messages that are out there, and there's a lot of content about, you know, different ways of speaking as being better or worse, um, people thinking that, you know, some dialects are going to be, you know, people thinking that some dialects have more status than others, and then kids soon start to learn that. Kids are like little cultural sponges that are picking up on the messages that society has to offer. Now, Katie, let's uh, move to the sixth topic. You call it on the basis of speech. They can't even speak English. In talk, we trust a living wage. Oh, on and on it goes. I want to hear about it, please. So I think about this part of my book as why does any of this matter for our real lives, right? So I've just told you that language, the way we speak is so critical for our identities, for how we connect with each other. But this plays out in some really important ways when we look at the legal system, when we look at people's ability to get a job or buy a house and how people are treated by each other. And again, as a society, we often don't realize how much linguistic prejudice there is out there. And so there's studies of, you know, anybody who speaks in a way that's considered a, you know, a non-standard way of speaking, you know, a dialect that's seen as having lower status, they can be treated really poorly, say, by the court system or have, you know, a harder time um, getting a job or finding, a, you know, buying a home, even though they shouldn't, even if the content of their speech is just as amazing as anybody else's, people can really be um, discriminated against very, you know, often in subtle ways that it adds up. And so in that sense, I think that for anybody who speaks, you know, for whom English isn't their native language, or if they speak a dialect of English that other people um, don't like as much, that there can be, you know, kind of this really additive but important way in which they might be treated, you know, be kind of advantaged. And I think that this is something we should be aware of and try to correct in our own actions and in our perceptions of each other. Katie, uh, let's get to chapter seven. Uh, you call it a linguistics revolution. Um, lots of interesting topics here. And uh, I want you to explain it all to us. So, you know, in the U.S., um, a lot of times we have what people sometimes call a monolingual myth. So this is the idea that being exposed to just one language, and often English, is kind of the default, the normal, the better way of being, something like this. 
And sometimes people even mistakenly think that if you just hear one language, it's kind of easier for your brain. Like it won't take up, you know, room for other important kinds of learning. But actually, kids are quite well equipped at learning multiple languages. Um, so, you know, if a child, say, speaks Spanish at home, they're, you know, they can absolutely learn English in school, and schools can do, you know, can and should do a really good job of teaching those kids English. Likewise, if a kid just speaks English at home, a school could teach them Spanish or another language. And so, you know, we have a lot of flexibility in early education to try to bring people languages. Um, and if anything, there's evidence, my research and others, showing that being exposed to multiple languages early in life can be really positive for children. That if you think about kind of your social environment, if you're hearing people speak in different ways, you might start to think, oh, you know, that person speaks this. Maybe grandma speaks this way. And I understand grandma, but dad doesn't. Or maybe we speak this way in this context and this way in this other context. And so you kind of get training in some perspective taking and thinking about what other people know and what they don't know. And then that can carry out into other kinds of perspective taking, which is really, really important for communication and interpersonal understanding. Katie, uh, we've got grand, uh, grandkids as early as pre-kindergarten uh, who are starting to speak or learn Spanish. Wow. That never happened back in my day. <laughs> it's a good thing, though, because their little minds are, you know, so open and ready to learn, and it's so easy for them in a way that it's, you know, so hard for adults. Uh, Katie, at the end of your book, there's an afterword, and it's, uh, it's not what you say, <laughs> and the word not is uh, scratched out, mm-hmm. unless that's a misprint on my sheet. No, that's right. Oh, good, <laughs> I did that good. one on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Now explain that afterward. <laughs> sure. So most of the book is about the way you say, right? So it's, you know, thinking about how you say it, your accent that you're using, um, or the language that you're using to speak. But in some ways, the weight of our words matters too. And so particularly when we're thinking about raising kids and we're thinking about how kids are learning those biases and prejudices that are out there in society, one thing we can do as adults and parents and educators is to think about our own language and the words we say to kids. And one way that we can sort of inadvertently communicate bias to kids is in talking about people as being a whole category or a whole group of people. It kind of makes it seem to the kid like, well, everybody who's in that group, whether it's a racial group or a gender group or a nationality group, that they're all kind of the same. And then you can see how that's sort of how stereotypes spread, that if you think everybody's exactly the same, you learn something negative about the group, and then you think, oh, everybody shares that, and then you kind of write the group off. So the better thing to do is if you're learning about somebody new, talk about them as being an individual, not as being a part of a whole group. And that helps kids, you know, that kind of helps give them a little bit of insulation um, and, you know, protects them a little bit from some of the stereotypes that are out there to be learned. Katie, I'm off curious. How did Southern accents begin? And how did that flat Midwestern accent begin? And how... Uh, did the Philadelphia accent with what 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 ice? I mean, mm-hmm. what's what's the background? What's the story here? 
Yeah. So basically, you know, I think you can think about all of these different accents or dialects kind of in the same way, which is to say that, you know, a lot of people think, well, why don't we just all talk the same? Like, wouldn't that be easier, right? Then there'd be none of this linguistic prejudice. But that's not how people work, and that's not how languages work. So the idea is that when you're in a community of speakers, you feel comfortable with each other. Say you like each other, you like your city, and maybe you don't like, you know, the people who some other group. Your language is going to shift to reflect that. Now, often it's the young people changing the language, and so they'll start to introduce a new dialect feature, and then it you know grows up in the language. And so, anytime you have different communities of people, different social lives, different social networks, their language is just going to shift to reflect that, and that's how you get all of this linguistic diversity, even within one language. Say, even among English, there's all different ways of talking English in the U.S. Katie, where did you uh, get interested in this whole topic? What started it? So for me, um, you know, I was really interested. I was going off to graduate school, and I wanted to study kids thinking about the social world, um, you know, in part to understand kids, but also to understand us as adults. But a lot of our adult thinking is informed by, you know, what we know and learn as kids. Um, so I was interested in that, and I actually spent some time right before I went to graduate school in the U.S. Um, I spent some time traveling. I was in um, Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia, all part of the former Yugoslavia. Um, and there had been a civil war and the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, and I noticed that you see this so much um, in the way people speak. And so, you know, I had this textbook. I was learning a language a little bit, um, and my textbook was called Serbo-Croatian. But actually, when I was there, that's not what people called the language at all. They would say Serbian or Croatian. Um, and so the idea was that, you know, the social changes as nations, you know, change and social communities change, that the language is a really important marker of a society's culture and their national identity. Um, so I came back to the U.S. and I started wondering, okay, so for adults, for sure, language is so powerful. And, you know, babies aren't going to know anything about nation states and, you know, civil wars and how language could be reflected in that. But do babies just kind of have this early notion that people who speak in a familiar way are kind of like me or two people who speak like each other are kind of like each other? And so that was really how my research started and just trying to understand kind of, you know, what do kids think about the way that language matters for social life. And, you know, we did find that really early in life, even babies start to think that the way you speak kind of matters for who you are. Katie, is English the um, business language of the world? I mean, I think that's true. I think there's probably a, that's going to really depend on where you are. Um, you know, I do think that English is emerging in a lot of places in that sense, but I think also it depends a lot on where you are. Um, now, I think it's great for people to learn English. Like, you know, this is not to say, not, you know, I don't want people to emerge from this thinking. I'm saying, oh, you know, everybody should just speak their own language and not worry about learning any new languages. You know, I think absolutely learning English seems, you know, really important and wonderful. But I also think that in the U.S., people who speak just English would also benefit from the experience of learning a different language. I, I guess uh, in here, in, in, in countries around the world, are, are young people uh, being taught English in their schools at a very early age? Many are. Um, and I think, again, you know, there's so many um, 
there's so many different world contexts and so many different places where even hundreds of languages could be spoken within the same country. And so, you know, I think that English is being taught in many places, but that's not true everywhere, for sure. Um, and I also think there's a lot of diversity in how well languages are taught early in life. Um, now, you know, in general, again, earlier is better. So as much as school systems in the U.S. or around the world can introduce language instruction as early as possible, kids really benefit from that because that's when their minds are, you know, most open to learning the language. Uh, Katie, what do you want people to take from the, your book and, and from our chat here today? So I think it'd be really wonderful if people just think about language in their own lives. And so, you know, I hope after this conversation, you go out there and you say, oh, wait, you know, I actually just noticed this person's accent or I noticed where, you know, people are speaking English here and Spanish there. I'm seeing how much language matters for bringing people together and pulling them apart. So I think people can just be aware of the social importance of language in their own lives. And then from there, they might also know, oh, well, this is a place where I feel like somebody maybe, you know, was kind of biased against me based on how I spoke. Or maybe here's a place where, you know, I judge someone based on their manner of speaking and like maybe I should have waited a second and, you know, kind of heard what they said. And so I think people will just notice how much language matters in their lives. And then they might be able to kind of take control over that and think about, you know, where you want it to matter and where you don't. Katie, what's the best part about living in Chicago? Uh, well, normally the restaurants, although I have not been going to any restaurants recently. <laughs> so, you know, hope, but hopefully we will, um, you know, get this, get this virus under control at some point. What's the weather been like this summer? It's been pretty warm, um, though I imagine it's probably warmer for you. Well, there's no question about it. Summertime in Florida <laughs> is uh, quite warm, as we know. Katie, a million thanks. Congrats on your book. And I'm glad we, had so a, much. glad we had a chance to visit with you. Thanks a lot for having me. It was really interesting t chatting with you. Katie Kinsler, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. Her book is called How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do, What It Says About You. Uh, uh, folks, we will have a wrap-up, uh, a one-minute wrap-up. We want you to stay with us right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And just remember, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, right here in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word.